HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's episode 97 of Feast Your Ears. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. It is the 14th of February. Also, happy birthday to my friend Nick Herman. I always remember your birthday because it's Valentine's Day. Uh, today, I am super excited to have Julia Tertian joining me by phone. Julia is the author of two fantastic books, countless articles. She was the host of Cherry Bomb Radio in its earliest seasons here, probably from the same chair I'm sitting in, uh, in our Heritage Radio container behind Roberta's in Bushwick. And if you haven't cracked either Small Victories or Feed the Resistance, uh, I suggest that you look them up immediately, borrow them from the library, or order them from your local bookseller. And if you get the Washington Post and haven't taken out your recycling yet, you should save the food section from last week, which has 15 wonderful recipes for winter veggies that Julia wrote. Thanks, Julia, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. That was such a a nice introduction. Uh, So you are not in the studio with us. You are sitting, I assume, at home upstate? I am, yes. I'm sitting at my desk at home um, about probably two and a half hours north of you. (laughs) Cool. Um, so since this is a show, I like to talk about what people do and not necessarily what they, you know, not always what they have, have done. Um, uh, I'm curious to, and, but I want to know how you got to be where you are and how you came to write small victories and feed the resistance. So when you, uh, when you run into someone on the street and you get to talking and inevitably, because we always ask this as people in the modern world, people say, what do you do? What do you say? Um, I say, uh, depends who I'm talking to. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sometimes I just like to talk about my dog. Yep. But, um, yeah, I just call myself a cookbook author. I think that is the kind of easiest way to sum up what I do. Sure. Uh, but Feed the Resistance really is more than a cookbook, I would say. Would you, mm-hmm. would you say that's fair? Um, 
Yeah, I would say that's fair. And, um, yeah, and I appreciate you saying that because I think um, it definitely, uh, you know, pushes, uh, you know, our idea of what a cookbook is a little further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it. I, I love that you have essays in here from people who are part of the resistance or are activists in different ways. Uh, Shakira Simley's uh, piece was really moving to me. Um, I happen to know her, but I also loved the loved the piece itself. Um, and you know, for those that that haven't seen the book, um, you know, can you tell me a little bit about what brought you to write it? Sure. Yeah. So, Feed the Resistance is, um, I think, the best way to describe it is it's a small book with a lot in it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yep. um, so, it's a cookbook, um, and as you said, a little bit more than that. It came out in October of 2017, so a few months ago, and it's uh, got 24 contributors from all over the country. All the proceeds from the book go to the ACLU, and the contents of the book, um, it's about 30 recipes. There's five really substantial essays, and then... At the back of the book, there's lists of ideas um, for ways to get involved, basically. Um, so it's a book that, you know, is just full of different resources, inspiration, um, things you can cook, things you can talk about, things that can, you know, open your mind, just like Shakira's essay, which you mentioned, which is just such a strong and moving piece about um, so many things, and I think mostly about how food justice cannot be achieved without racial justice. Yeah, um, absolutely. She just breaks that down in such a evocative way. So, yeah, there's a lot in it. And, um, you know, I love that we were able to make it so, as I mentioned, all the proceeds could, you know, go to the ACLU. So any reader picking up the book just by purchasing it, you've, you know, supported the protection of civil liberties. So, yeah, yeah it's a book that kind of does a lot of things. Yeah, I think I think, you know, in the wake of... The, uh, the 2016 election, I think it became sort of, it, not only is it sort of overwhelming every day to hear the things that the current administration and their cronies are kind of doing, um, but it is overwhelming to understand what can we do as people, right? As, as one small person or as a small group of people sort of against yeah. that. Um, and, and I love that there are a lot of different ways presented in here and, and that you point out as, as small as just buying this book. Um, if you all you want to do mm-hmm. is read it and understand it and use the recipes, you're already doing something. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, to answer your question, which I'm realizing I didn't, I don't think <laughs> okay. about you know why I put the book together. It's it's exactly that. You know, I was thinking I had my own feelings after the election: uh, anger, frustration, <laughs> depression, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I thought, what can what can I do as an individual? Um, and what can I do as a cookbook author? And, you know, the idea for the book came to me, and it seemed like a really uh, productive thing to do and something positive to add to the conversation and to hopefully give people ideas for just things they can do as individuals. Um, because I think, you know, I'm a big believer that if we all make some changes, we open our minds, we expand our communities, you know, this adds up to really, you know, big differences. And I think that the the support systems that exist or that we can create, I mean, cooking for people is a way to support them, right? I mean, I cook for my family almost every day, and that's a way that I support them in whatever they're doing. And so I think it's also important to remember that, you know, if what you can do is to make a pot of rice and beans and help feed people who are the ones who are lobbying or are the ones that are writing letters, that you are, in fact, helping sort of the resistance and helping the movement along. Um, And it's something that that I think, and sort of coalesced for me as an idea when I was looking at Feed the Resistance is that this is something that the military does very well, 
right? They have these oh, logistics yeah. mm-hmm. and these support systems in place. I mean, my very first episode of Feast Your Ears, one of the things that I talked about, I interviewed a family friend who's a Vietnam veteran, and we talked about food and how when he was leading his platoon through the jungles of Vietnam, the U.S. government flew them a hot meal by helicopter at least once a day and how important it was to them and their morale that they got hot food and they weren't just opening a cold can of MREs every day. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think the power of a, you know, a warm meal is is huge. And I think it's important for, you know, everyday home cooks like yourself, like myself, um, you know, maybe people who don't cook every day, but, you know, just anyone who's interested in, um, you know, getting into their kitchens, I think understanding how much um, power you're able to affect just by cooking a meal. And, you know, it can be that, you know, the way it makes someone feel like someone in the military, like you just described, Um, you know, it's, it's this very tangible way of making someone feel supported and paid attention to and, you know, and loved. And, you know, there's so many decisions making that meal that also make a difference, you know, where you're buying the ingredients, whose recipe you're following, you know, what story are you telling with the food? What are you talking about while you're eating the yeah. meal? Um, you know, it's a really, there's a lot in a meal. Absolutely. And, and to be clear, I'm not supporting the, the Vietnam War and the reasons that we went there, <laughs> but just sort of pointing out that, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we can certainly learn a lot, um, you know, even if we are against what the military is doing, if we look at how it is organized and the way that it uses food and, and how food is important to what they're doing to sort of, to uh, to feed the resistance is, a, I think, a way to, great Absolutely. way to put it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, it, it also reminded me reading your book um, about a, a small amount of time spent volunteering with Food Not Bombs back in the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. When I went to college in Western Mass, there was a very active chapter uh, that served food to mostly homeless, but whoever was hungry. Um, and, and I felt like that was something that, you know, I, at least in my regular life, have not seen a lot of recently. Um, and I'm not, you know, I know that the organization still exists. It's a very, it was always a sort of loose anarchic group. So it's not, you know, not a, not organized like the ACLU, for instance. Um, but just the idea that the real point there was food and that we can all be more productive if we're not hungry. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they've been going for, um, I think it's something like 35 years now, food, not bombs. Yeah. I think even, I think some, um, yeah, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the work that they do, the work that um, lots of organizations, you know, across the country do to, you know, serve people who are experiencing homelessness, um, you know, this idea of radical hospitality, of yeah. like, giving someone a homemade meal, is it, it makes just a huge difference um, in so many ways. And there's a real um, kind of butterfly effect to it that I think is often not discussed. Um, you know, my wife and I, we volunteer every week at... Um, an organization near where we live, where it's kind of like a Meals on Meals program, but based just in our local community. And we, you know, provide these homemade meals that are delivered to clients who are homebound for a variety of reasons, mostly chronic illness. And one woman who we work with there was talking about, you know, it's not just, you know, how that meal makes, you know, perhaps one woman feel. It's how that woman's, you know, daughter might feel knowing that her mother is, you know, taken care of in that department. Um, sure. You know, so the effects of, of this kind of um, service and of kind of just supporting community are huge. And it's, it's more than just that single meal. It's, um, it goes way beyond that. Yeah. And so I think that's a great segue to talk about your first cookbook, Small Victories. 
Um, hmm. which, which yeah. I think, you know, there is also the side of it that the person who's making that food, right. Can then become empowered or have self-confidence about what they're doing. And I think that that then, you know, becomes, becomes valuable. I mean, I love that in that book that you, you know, you talk about how it's not really like, it's not about the perfect and it's about understanding food and it's understanding these things and using these recipes, but that, you know, it's, it's about these sort of small victories. I mean, you know, I, I still, it's a huge ego boost for me when my four-year-old gives me a thumbs up as he stuffs his face <laughs> with something that I made. <laughs> right. Um, and he's a very fickle eater. So sometimes it is like, it does feel like a actually pretty big victory if he decides that he really likes something. Yeah. That I've cooked. That's a big deal. <laughs> Um, um, and, and, you know, so can you tell me a little bit about, uh, about that book and sort of for you, like, what is, you know, what, what are the small victories in the kitchen? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, small victories is, um, my cookbook that came out, I guess last fall, so like fall 2016. Um, and it is, you know, all recipes for home cooks and each recipe has, um, a small victory, which is like a tip or a technique that's used in the recipe um, and that just makes cooking a little easier and, you know, just demystifies the way certain things happen. And then um, every single recipe is followed by a number of, I call them spin-offs and they're just sort of variations. So the idea is once you know that small victory, you know, once you've mastered it, you know that tip or technique, not only can you make this one thing, you can also make a whole bunch of other things. And the purpose of organizing the book, um, you know, with the small victories and the spinoffs was just to show, you know, the way that I approach cooking, which is it's flexible and, yeah. uh, you kind of, you know, you use what you have and you sort of build on these building blocks of, um, of just skills and knowledge that you, you get by just cooking. And the only way to keep cooking is to just keep showing up for it. So, you know, I wanted to make a book that felt like, you know, it was, here are things to hopefully make you excited to get in the kitchen, but also here's all the stuff to make you comfortable once you're there. Um, and small victories for me is, you know, was a really fun way to approach the cookbook. Um, but it's also, you know, totally the way I think about and approach life. And I think you have to just celebrate all the small victories along the way, um, you know, on a day to day basis, you know, everything from, you know, a really small, you know, small, but great thing, like finding a good parking spot. (laughs) Um, to maybe crossing something a little bit more significant off your list. But I think if you if you pay attention to those things, it just means you're um, being kind of more present mm-hmm. and more joyful and more connected. And, you know, those are always really good things. Yeah, when I, on my way to the studio today, I had one of those great subway moments where, like, I swiped my card, I walked down the stairs, and, like, was able to be, like, completely in stride right onto the train. Like, as I was walking on the platform, the train <laughs> pulled up, the yep. doors opened, I didn't even have to stop, I walked right onto the train, like, you know, and, and it was, it, it does feel like a small victory, it's a really, it's super fun. I love that in the beginning, I think it's in the introduction in Small Victories, you, uh, you say stress makes food taste bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, yeah. I I love the yeah. idea of that because people do you know they do freak out about food and stressing out and it, you know oh gosh I only have one carrot and the recipe says two or you know what if I only have water and not chicken stock and and mm-hmm. I think it's also important to remember the other side that you know stress makes animals taste bad when they're being slaughtered too so yeah, like I think that's that very true. <laughs> stress anywhere in the fin and same thing with vegetables right like if the vegetables have to go through too much you know if they have to travel too far or go through too many heat and cold cycles it that makes them taste bad too 
Yeah, I mean, I think stress is definitely, um, I just got home from my therapy appointment. <laughs> so this is very apropos, but I just, stress is one of the most kind of toxic and unhealthy things any of us can experience. And I think, um, you know, so many people associate it with cooking, which is, um, you know, just bums me out because I think for me, cooking is my biggest stress reliever and it's what makes me feel most connected to um you know, the environment, my family, um, to my family that came before me, you know, it's the thing that grounds me more than anything. And so whatever I can do as a cookbook author to make, um, you know, home cooking not only free of stress, but also just full of connection is absolutely, you know, what I'm all about. Well, and, and I think that your, I think your book does that. And I think, you know, I hope that, oh, that, well, that everyone who picks up the book does become less stressed out around cooking uh, <laughs> and, and can take some of that with them. We're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about your pets. Oh, sure. <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, anyplace. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satari's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You smile like a nun Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I'm joined by the wonderful cookbook author, Julia Tertian, on the phone uh, from her desk upstate. Uh, Julia, before the break, we talked a great deal about your cookbooks, and uh, now I want to talk about your pets. Uh, the photograph that will be up on the page for this episode has a picture of you and two really good-looking dogs. Can you tell me about them? I could talk about them all day. <laughs> um, yeah, our dogs are Hope and Winky are their names, um, and they both they came with their names because they're both rescues, and they are actually both from Puerto Rico and oh, wow. come from an organization called the Sato Project. Mm. Um, and yeah, they're the best. They make everything better, and our lives kind of revolve around them. <laughs> and, I mean um, that 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 totally happens. Yeah, I had a I had a wonderful perhaps. dog named Woody. For a long time, who passed away last summer, and we have not. Uh, oh, we've not gotten. That. We've not gotten another dog yet. We'll see if that happens. I mean, it, it's interesting you say that the dogs kept their names. When I was a kid, we had a dog named Whiskey, that my parents adopted <laughs> from an old lady who was an alcoholic, 
And oh, so when I was little, like when, as I, as I got older and I became like of drinking age and like it came, became clear to me what whiskey really was. It had never, like I had never made the connection as like a five-year-old that having a dog named whiskey was weird <laughs> because so to funny. me, whiskey was a dog, not a beverage. <laughs> Uh, and then my 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 late dog Woody, uh, we did in fact change his name, even though he was a rescue. Um, he was a lab pit mix and was all black. And the name he came with when we got him was Blackie. And we decided that chasing after a dog who, if he ever were to get away through the streets of Brooklyn and yelling mm-hmm. Blackie, Blackie, get back here, or Black Blackie, stop, was not a little really, problematic. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't really be appropriate. So we changed his name to Woody instead. Yeah, we, um, before we moved to where we live now, my wife and I lived in Brooklyn, um, not far from Brooklyn Kitchen, and we used to take, we just had Hope at that point, not, uh, we didn't have Winky yet, and we used to take Hope to McCarran Park all the time, and um, if she was, you know, doing something she wasn't supposed to do, which dogs tend to do, yep. we would find ourselves yelling, no Hope, <laughs> really loud, <laughs> which is like... A little sad, but anyway. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good one. I like that. Uh, so, are they uh, are they present when you're recipe testing and cooking? Oh yeah, they're so we um, our house our kitchen is kind of uh, open to kind of like our living room, and we basically all kind of live in that area all the time with the dogs. If I'm cooking or if I'm sitting at the you know kitchen table writing, um, they're pretty much always around. And do they have do they have a favorite they have favorite foods? Woody Woody's favorite food was carrots. Strangely, as a dog, I always find that weird. <laughs> one of our dogs likes carrots. One is kind of skeptical. Uh, they're both definitely like um, carnivores, <laughs> and like if we're cooking anything with you know any type of meat or chicken or anything like that, you know the the tails will will wag. Right, right. Um, growing up, what did you uh, what did you grow up eating? Uh, it's such a good question because I think um, the way I cook at home now actually really does not replicate what I grew up with. Um, and so I grew up mostly in New York City and then moved to the suburbs when I was a little bit older. And um, both of my parents, um, you know, worked full time since like the day I was born. So we were not by any means a family that like sat down every night you know, to a home-cooked meal made by, like, a parent. Um, There was a lot of takeout, um, which definitely did expose me to a lot of different foods at a really young age, um, especially being a kid in New York. Um, And then the other sort of major thing in the food of my upbringing was um, I was very much, you know, also raised by my babysitter, um, who I continue to maintain a really close relationship with. Um, and there's actually a recipe in Small Victories from Jenny, uh, who was my childhood babysitter. And Jenny's from St. Vincent, um, and she would make a lot of, uh, she would cook a lot of food sort of for herself that I was always really curious about and would also eat with her. And, um, you know, things like her, her pillow, which is a recipe in Small Victories, which is sort of like a one-pot chicken and rice dish. Um, she would make goat curries and different like fish soups and stuff like that and getting to you know watch Jenny cook that food to eventually cook it with her to sit and eat that food with her um it was such a formative way for you know for me to develop my relationship with her um and it was such a you know major part of how I've come to understand how food can bring really different people together so that was like a big big factor in my childhood and then um 
on both sides of my family, I come from kind of long lines of Jewish New Yorkers. So <laughs> things like, you know, chicken soup and yeah. good bread and uh, knishes and all that kind of stuff. That's definitely, you know, there's a big place in my heart for all that kind of food. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that is, I think, you know, another aspect of what of what food can do. And that's really nice that you're able to then share that recipe with other people and they can then form their own relationship with it. Um, you know, uh, what was the, uh, what was the best thing that you cooked this week? This week? Um, I, so Monday night, we went out for dinner last night. We met a friend. So Monday night I made, um, it was like a really quick meal, but it ended up being really good. And so we live, um, there's a, a place called Applestone Meat near where we live. Sure. Which I, I know by, Josh and um, Jessica very well. Them. Yeah. And so you know about their vending machines? I love it so much. And yeah, I've been so they to have the one these, in Stone yeah, For Ridge. anyone who's not familiar, they have these refrigerated vending machines that are accessible 24 hours a day. And you basically can go buy all this really great meat whenever you want. So we have a lot of random Applestone things in our freezer all the time. And so I had earlier in the day pulled out a, a package of like half ground pork and half ground beef. Um, and I mixed it with some harissa paste and some cumin. And that was kind of it. And I just broiled them, mm. like these little kind of meatballs. And then I also broiled some cubes of eggplant. And then I cooked some greens. And so we had those like meatballs and eggplant and greens. And I mixed a little tahini with like lemon and garlic and some hot water. And it was, it was delicious. And it was like done in like half an hour. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I, I would say one of the best things I cooked this week was actually in, in thumbing through Feed the Resistance the other day. I realized that I had a couple of sweet potatoes and you have a very simple mm. sort of, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's hard to even call it a recipe, but I guess a, a, a technique or a suggestion to just take sweet potatoes and bake them or roast them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you talk about how they exist kind of in, in Japan. Um, and I, I had, you know, orange sweet potatoes, but they were so good. And I had forgotten how delicious it is to just take a sweet potato and prick the outside and put some olive on it and just roast it in the oven. And how sweet potato is such a delicious and nutrient dense and enjoyable food just in texture and taste and, and size. Um, so that was, I think one of definitely one of the best that I had this week. Yeah. No, they're one of my favorites, and that recipe in the book um, was from Stephen Satterfield, who's awesome, and Stephen does lots of stuff, including he has a, a great magazine, Whetstone Magazine, yep. um, and Stephen's recipe was for the you know the baked sweet potatoes with like this really delicious like roasted tomato sauce and polenta, and it was just as you said, it was like about you know really simple food that's um, really easy to prepare and really nutrient dense, uh, but also really affordable. Yep. Um, and that was a, you know, it was kind of a bunch of recipes in one he did. And it was for the section of recipes, like cooking for a large crowd. So it's something you can make for a lot of people, totally vegan. Um, yeah, you don't have to spend a lot of money and you can really serve your community something delicious that, you know, wasn't hard to make. And if anyone is uh, happens to find themselves in Flushing, uh, there's an H Mart uh, Korean grocery store out there that in the parking lot during the winter... There is a guy with a 55-gallon drum roasting sweet potatoes all the time. And it's like, for me, it's one of the, like, best excuses to go 
to the Korean grocery store <laughs> because afterwards we always get to have a freshly roasted sweet potato yeah, and eat it on the drive home. Yeah, I was going to ask if you get it on your way in or your way out. No, usually on the way out. Usually it's like the- that's what we eat on the way home. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, so it is Valentine's Day. Um, and so do you have any plans with Grace? Or are you guys doing anything for Valentine's Day? Well, I said to Grace this morning that every day is Valentine's Day, oh, as far as I'm concerned. Nice. <laughs> so, um, but she, Grace said she's going to make um, a dinner tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. And I don't know what's on the menu, but I will do the dishes. Nice, nice. That's, I mean, I feel like that's, uh, that's sort of what it's about, right? Is not knowing and trusting, trusting your partner to make something that will be delicious. Right. That's (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. I, uh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to end up doing. I mean, it's a little different with two kids. We certainly are not, we did not get a babysitter. We're not going out. I feel like, uh, once you have kids going out on Valentine's day is the equivalent of going out on St. Patrick's day. If you like to drink, (laughs) Uh, it's just sort of not, you know, I mean, I, I would much rather go out for a romantic dinner any other night with my wife than yeah. Valentine's Day. I support that. <laughs> um, when I asked you uh, before the before the show to answer some questions, um, you said your favorite book is Edna Lewis's The Taste of Country Cooking, and it's also your favorite cookbook. Can you tell me why you love that book so much? Sure. Yeah. Um, I love that book for so many reasons. Um, and mostly because it is, it's a book no one else could have written. Um, you know, it's her voice, it's her story. Um, and what I'm so excited about with, with that book is actually a book that's coming up in a couple of months. Um, I guess in April, which isn't that far away. Um, a friend of mine, Sarah Franklin, edited a collection of essays about Edna Lewis. Wow. And you know, I've always loved that book, The Taste of Country Cooking, yeah. you know, her cookbook. Um, but I was I was lucky to receive an early copy of Sarah's book and getting to read um, from so many people who I admire about what Edna Lewis and her work meant to them has just, you know, reignited my, my love for Edna Lewis. Not that it that blame was ever out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a whole new appreciation. So I'm, you know, as excited about Sarah's book as I am about the taste of country cooking. Oh, that is, that is super cool. Um, and, uh, living in the Hudson Valley, um, I imagine that you, you know, you have access to Applestone meat 24 seven, which is very cool. I do. Um, <laughs> I do. just to go back to that for one second, I have to say that I, when, when Josh first told me about the idea for doing those vending machines, um, I immediately loved it, but I also love, I felt like I loved it because it was super impractical. Um, but the more <laughs> I've thought about it, I just wish it would be so cool if we had meat vending machines in New York City. I just like it would be so great if you just knew on your way home that you could just pick up some like well raised and cared for and well cut pork chops. Yeah, I'm totally into it. At first, I was like, "This is weird," and then I just <laughs> I love it. I go there all the time. So, what are your other favorite food things about living in the Hudson Valley? Mm, I mean, where we live, it's so interesting because I spent most of my life in New York city, you know, and I would try to frequent farmer's markets as much as I could. And, you know, you're buying from farms that aren't that far away from the city. And now where I live, um, I'm in very close proximity to those farms, which is amazing. And so not only is it um, really easy to buy directly from them, you know, either going to those farms or going to farmer's markets in my area. Um, it's also 
it's part of my day-to-day life to just drive by them and really understand, uh, you know, what it looks like to grow food all year round and, you know, what it looks like this time of year when the fields were so, you know, shallow and... Um, it's absolutely kind of changed my relationship to um, to produce, to vegetables, just by getting to see that day in and day out. So that's pretty cool. Do you find yourself eating a lot of potatoes and cabbage this time of year? <laughs> um, yeah, we definitely eat. Yeah, we eat all that stuff, all kinds of root vegetables. Yeah, beets, and, uh, carrots, parsnips. Yeah. Sorry? I said beets, beets carrots, parsnips. parsnips yeah. Those are yeah. some of my- how many things can you do with a celery root? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting. I, I feel like you could do a whole article about that. I mean, you did that in, in the Post, right? In, uh, in the Washington Post, all of your winter veggie yeah. recipes. Yeah, and they're all... Um, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that earlier in the show. And yeah, they're all online. And it was um, it was like five winter ingredients and three recipes for each. And one ingredient was celery root and one was turnips. Um, so those kind of root vegetables and... Also mustard greens and what else do I do? Citrus and um, chuck roast was the fifth they oh, gave me. Oh, cool! Which was kind of fun. Nice. Um, well, we're almost out of time. Do you have any anything coming up that you want to mention? Are you doing any uh, any book events or any other exciting stuff people should look out for? Um, I appreciate that. I've got a few pots on the stove at the moment of some exciting things, but I guess the next big thing that's coming up is I actually have another cookbook coming next fall. So maybe I can talk to you about it more then. That'd oh, fantastic. Fun. That sounds great. Um, well, thanks, Julia, so much for joining me and taking time out of your yeah, day. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, people should check out juliatertian.com for more information, and you can follow Julia on Instagram and Twitter at Tertian, uh, and you can see some great photographs of her uh, of her recipes and probably of her dogs, too. <laughs> Absolutely. That's guaranteed. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering this show. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show if you do, in fact, like it on any of those platforms. And you can reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on social media at thefoodballer, and I'll talk to you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.